But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that it, what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This morning, we want to welcome uh, Daniel uh, Golan to uh, preach God's word. And I told him I wasn't going to say anything, but I changed my mind. So, <laughs> Daniel. Uh, <clears throat> Daniel has shared God's word with us before, and uh, he's going to be sharing the next two weeks. And uh, we're just really grateful, uh, Daniel, that you're willing to serve uh, us in this way. And uh, we want to be praying for Daniel, not just as he preaches this morning, but, uh, you know, he's searching for uh, what God wants him to do with his life. And rather than just taking, you know, whatever's out there, he really wants uh, what God wants for his life. And we're, we're really uh, grateful for that, and we're praying with you. Thank you. But let's just pray for you now as you uh, get ready to share God's word. Uh, Father, we're, we're so thankful for this young man. Uh, we're thankful for you, how you shaped his life, the experiences you've given him, the heart you've given him for you. And we just pray that you would guide and direct his steps in the future, that they might honor you in every way. So, Father, as he comes now to share your word with us, we pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would just use him, that you would prepare our hearts to hear the word that you have for us. Mm -hmm. uh, speak through him clearly. And uh, we, we uh, give you thanks uh, in advance for the word that you will share through his life today. Mm. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, George Mallory was a well-known British lieutenant during the First World War. George Mallory, though, is probably better known for being a mountaineer. He was one of the first individuals to actually try and make his way up to the top of Mount Everest. He took part in the first three British expeditions to try and make his way all the way to the top, to the top of that mountain that stood 88 kilometers above sea level, the tallest mountain in the entire world. And when asked, George, why do you want to go to the top? Why do you want to climb Mount Everest? This is what he said. He said, because it is there. My question is really like, really? That's your answer? You, you want to climb Mount Everest? You want to spend days, weeks, months away from your family. You want to risk your life. You want to lose fingers and toes just because? I don't think so. 
And later, he's actually a little bit more honest. He writes this letter to his wife. Listen to what he says. He says, Dearest, you must know that the spur to do my best is you and you again. Then he says this. I want more than anything to prove my worth to you. I want to prove my worth. That's why he wants to climb Everest. He wants to show the world that his life means something. He wants to show himself that he's good enough. He wants to be a somebody. Now today, everywhere you look, there are Everests. There are these climbs, these aspirations that we have to to be somebodies. We want to move up in this world. We want the world to recognize. We want the world to deem our lives as being of value. There are Everests everywhere. And to everyone, this Everest may look different. For some, it's a certain job or a certain car you drive to show the world that you're a somebody. For other people, it's owning a home. It's having a family. It's having kids. It's having obedient kids. It's having successful kids. We want our lives to be meaningful. We want to prove our worth. You can make an Everest out of anything today. I think one of the reasons we care so much about being successful is because we, in a sense, want to be like God. We want to feel as though we are in control. Because you see, if we're at the top of the mountain, if we're as high as it can be, and that means everyone else is below us, then we feel as though we're untouchable. It feels like we can dictate our own future. It feels like no one can stand in our way. If we have fame, if we have honor, then we can feel like we can manipulate others into serving us. And if we can manipulate others into serving us, we feel as though our life is secure. And if our life is secure, then things go my way. And if things go my way, well, then the world praises me. Because I must be on top of the world. I'm like, God. The problem is, is that no matter how high up you end, no matter how much control you feel like you have, you never have enough. You feel this any moment tragedy comes your way. You feel this when, when your life starts to fall in between your fingertips. You see that you're not in total control. You see that your identity is being compromised. Your self-worth and the praise you receive can be taken away. And, and so you freak out. You gotta climb another Everest. Famous, mega superstar, pop singer, Madonna. She says this. I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. 
my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Every day, every moment of every hour, you have a question to yourself. Am I going to climb another Everest? Am I going to keep fighting to be my own God? Am I going to secure my own value and worth? Or will I let someone else be my God? Will I put my identity in someone else? Will I let someone else climb Everest on my behalf? Will I find my identity in what I do or in what Jesus has already done for me? So let me give you the main idea of our passage this morning, and then we'll work our way through each stage. This is the main idea. Jesus. Jesus, a nobody from nowhere, does everything for nobody's everywhere. Let me say that again. Jesus, a nobody from nowhere, does everything for nobody's everywhere. First, Jesus, the nobody from nowhere. In chapter 2, Matthew has been working very hard to show us that Jesus is the individual. Jesus is the person that the Old Testament has longed for. They're the one he's been hoping for and expecting. He's the one they've written about. And so four times in chapter 2, Matthew quotes an Old Testament passage and relates it to Jesus. And what you discover is that Jesus is not only fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, he is reliving Israel's history. Jesus is living the life Israel was supposed to live. Jesus is the perfect Israel. He is the perfect son of God. And then you come to our passage and we hear the last of these Old Testament prophecies. We hear it in verse 23. Read it again with me. It says this, and he, that's Jesus, and Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, you need to know something. Nazareth is a little town in the middle of nowhere. Nazareth is a speck of dust on the world scale. It's estimated that at the time of Jesus, Nazareth had maybe 500 people living in it. My family and I had the chance to visit the town of Nazareth a few years ago. And actually, there's a church in Nazareth. It's estimated that the entire city was the city. It's not a city. It's a podunk town. This entire podunk town was the size of this church. That's what Nazareth is. Okay, has anyone here ever heard of the town Kregalashi? Hands up. What? There's a few people. Actually, wow. This is how I found this town. I had never heard of it. I googled Vancouver on my phone, a town I know, like Jerusalem. 
And then I swiped for a while on my phone. And then I said, oh, look, I don't see anything around. I kept swiping, and there was Craig Alashi. That's like Nazareth, okay? No one ever cared about Nazareth. It was meaningless and insignificant. Nazareth was the punchline to jokes. Like, why didn't the chicken cross the road? Because it was in Nazareth and there was no road. That's what Nazareth was. It was despised and lowly. Nazareth is so small, so insignificant, Matthew has to clarify where it's actually found. You notice in chapter 22, he says that they went to the district of Galilee. That's the way most people would know where Nazareth is, is that it's located in this larger area called Galilee. But you need to know, Galilee is also not highly thought of. People who lived in Galilee had accents. They were bottom dwellers. They were cop-outs. You see, if you lived in Galilee, that means you didn't live in Judea. And Judea is where Jerusalem was, and Jerusalem was the hub of religious life. You lived in Galilee if you didn't care about being a faithful Jew. You lived in Galilee if you really didn't want to have to do all of those festivals and celebrations that were so important and meaningful to being a Jew. One rabbi said that he tried for 18 years to establish a religious school in the area of Galilee, and he failed for 18 years. Finally, he says this. He sums up his attempt this way. Galilee, Galilee, you hate the Torah. You hate God's instruction. You don't want anything to do with him. You need to read this. Um, In Luke chapter 2, Luke 2 verse 51, um, Jesus is with his family. He's a young boy. He's in Jerusalem. And they're going to go back home with his family. And we read this. And he went down with them to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Listen to that word again, though. And he went down with them. You go up to Jerusalem, partly because Jerusalem is higher up, it's on a hill, it's on a mountain, the temple is at the top of that hill, but you go down to Galilee. Not just geographically, though, socially, culturally, religiously. Galilee is down. This is where Jesus grows up, though. In the middle of nowhere, in a place no one cares about, in a place people thought was terrible. Here's the problem, though. In our passage, we're told Jesus grows up in Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. The problem is, is that Nazareth is so small and insignificant, it's actually not in our Old Testament. You don't hear the word Nazareth in the Old Testament. In fact, you don't hear the word Nazareth in any contemporary literature at the time. So so how can Jesus, growing up in Nazareth, 
fulfill Old Testament prophets and what they foretold about him. Well, there's a very interesting little um, nuance or distinction between this quote and the other three quotes in the chapter 2. So look at 23 again. It says, And he went and lived in the city of Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, you notice in the other quotations, it's singular, but here it was so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Also in the Greek, and you kind of notice in our Bible, there's not really a direct quotation given here by Matthew. See, this is the point. This is why this fulfills Old Testament prophets, is because even though the Old Testament prophets never mentioned Nazareth, they talked about someone who would live in a place like Nazareth. They talked about the Messiah as though he would live in a place that was lowly, rejected, and despised. And that's everywhere in our Old Testament. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 6. David writes, talking about the Messiah and himself as well, but also the Messiah. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by my people. Or Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2 and 3, it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Or Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from a stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You see, you see what Jesus was? He was just a little shoot, just a little plant growing up from a dead stump. A while back, I visited Cathedral Grove on Vancouver Island. It boasts some of Western Canada's largest trees. You know what I did not do when I got there? I did not look down and go, oh, look at that little shoot growing up from the ground. No, my eyes were upward looking at the majestic trees. That's where I looked. But Jesus, when he came, he was just a shoot. No one looked at him. No one cared to think well, what he would become one day. Even in the New Testament, Nazareth is a joke. Listen to these words in John chapter 1. John 1 verses 45 and 46. Jesus is now beginning his ministry. He's left Nazareth and he's calling disciples to himself. And we read this. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, the joke wasn't, How come the chicken didn't cross the road? The joke was, Guess where we found the Messiah? Nazareth. 
<laughs> that was the joke. The Messiah wouldn't come from Nazareth, they thought. But he did. Here's my question. Why is it important that Jesus come from Nazareth? Why is it important? Now, I'll, I'll say more about this at the end, but I want to say this at first. I think it shows us that the mundane of life matters. I think it shows us that you can be regular, insignificant, unpopular, uninfluential, and still be of value. A few uh, years ago, actually a while back now, there was a book called Radical. It was calling, it was a great book. It was calling Christians to, to stand out and be different, to live unlike the rest of society and, and to live full out for God. But then a few years after that book was published, there was a really important book that also came out. It was called Ordinary. And it made a valuable point. Your life can be ordinary and you can still serve God. You know what um, theologians call Jesus' first 30 years of life? They call it the, the lives of obscurity. Lives of, of obscurity or the years of obscurity. That's what Jesus was. No one knew about him. He was working in a carpenter shop. He was covered in sawdust. He was banging in a hammer. And yet for those 30 years, he was faithful. He was serving the Lord. He was fully obedient. He was pleasing to his heavenly Father. You see, the regular ins and outs of daily life can be meaningful still. You can drive your kids to school and back home and to soccer practice and to piano practice and back home and you can then change their diapers and feel like that's all you got done that whole day and that day still is important that day can still be used to serve the Lord. You can mow your lawn. You can go to work. You can punch in numbers all day at a computer. And you can come home and your life can be ordinary. And you can still be of value. Jesus, for 30 years of his life, grew up in Nazareth. He was a nobody from nowhere. But he does something. Jesus, in fact, does everything we need. See, what I want to do for the rest of our time together is I want to answer Nathaniel's question. Can anything good come from Nazareth? So, so look at our passage again. Matthew 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Herod was king of the Jews, or, or sort of king of the Jews. The Romans actually made him king of the Jews, but the Romans actually ruled over Herod who kind of ruled over the rest of the Jews. But Herod was not just king of the Jews. He was a wicked man. He had uh, tried to kill the children in Bethlehem. He had killed many other people. He murdered his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, 
three of his sons, and his favorite wife. There was a saying back then that said, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son because he treats them better. Herod was a wicked man. Herod actually recognized he was a wicked man. We're told that when Herod was nearing the end of his life, he feared that when he died, people wouldn't mourn. And so what he did is he took a bunch of leaders from Israel, and he locked them up, and he ordered for them to be executed when he died, so that even if they didn't cry because of his death, they would at least cry when he died. Herod was terrible. Herod was wicked, yet he could not kill Jesus. Why? Because Jesus came to overcome evil. Herod could not stop Jesus. The demons could not stop Jesus. Jesus goes all the way to the top. He deals with Satan himself. He crushes Satan's head. He defeats sin. He defeats the consequences of sin. That's what Jesus has come to do. Something I find really fascinating is the other times in the Bible that we hear, or the New Testament, that we hear the word Nazareth. Listen listen to this time. Acts 3, verse 6. Acts 3, verse 6. We read this. And Peter said, he's talking to a lame man, someone who is crippled, who is begging him for help and for money. Peter said to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Sin, not necessarily this man's sin, but sin in general had made this man cripple. Sin had broken this world. And yet, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, this man is healed. Can anything good come from Nazareth? How about overcoming the power of sin? How about the serpent killer? How about the sin ender? How about the suffering vanisher? He comes from Nazareth. Jesus came to overcome evil and to put an end to it once and for all. But he does more. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Herod dies in 4 BC. Okay? Four years before the common era, Herod dies. Joseph and Jesus and Mary are in in Egypt. An angel had told them to go and and hide from Herod, who was going to try to kill the young children in Bethlehem. And and now the angel appears again, and and he says, go back. Go go back to Israel. And then he we read in verse 20, he puts it this way, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now there's a very interesting part of that phrase. 
the angel says, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those, again, plural, those individuals, many of them, who sought the child's life are dead. Now, I think it may be alluding to the fact that Herod ordered soldiers, and so they, plural, were seeking to kill Jesus. But I think Matthew is drawing our attention to something else. You see, if you were a Jew and you heard verse 20, immediately you would think of Moses. Moses also was told to go back because those who sought his life were also dead. Listen to this. Exodus chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, listen, go back to Egypt for all the men, plural, who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and they went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. You see what Matthew is trying to equate here? Matthew is trying to say Jesus is like Moses. Just like Jesus fled for safety, Moses fled from safety. Just like Jesus outlived his pursuers. Moses outlived his pursuers. Just as though Jesus returned to his people, Moses returned to his people. And just like Moses did one other thing, Jesus will do one other thing. He'll save his people. Jesus is the savior that Moses was. Listen again to another time we hear the word Nazareth. Acts chapter 22, verse 6 to 8. This is Paul talking. And I was on my way, and I drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered him, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Can anything good come from Nazareth? How about the one who saves Paul? How about the one who then saves Paul, who saves other Gentiles, who then leads to your salvation? Your salvation comes from the one who came from Nazareth. See, Jesus not only conquered evil and sin like out there, he conquers it in here, in your own life. Just like Moses brought Israel out of slavery and bondage to Pharaoh, so Jesus brings you out of slavery to sin. You are no longer mastered by sin. Sin no longer defines you. You have freedom. You are free, free to serve God, free to live a life of human flourishing, free to please your Father in everything you do. Because Jesus is our Savior. Thirdly, look at verses 21 and 22. And he rose, so Joseph is obedient, he listens, and he takes the child and his mother, and they went to the land of 
Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So Joseph takes his family. He's heading back to Israel from Egypt. But then he finds out, oh no, Archelaus is in charge. And that's a problem because the apple does not fall very far from the tree. And just like Herod was a wicked man, Archelaus was a wicked man. We're told from historians that while Herod was still alive, he had erected a golden eagle on top of the temple. And that was a big deal to the Jews because that golden eagle was equated with the god Zeus and Jupiter. Also, the the Roman soldiers bore the symbol of a golden eagle on their military equipment. And so for the Jews to see a golden eagle on top of the temple, they thought that was an idol. You, you are making an idol out of our God. You are breaking the second commandment. And so two famous Jewish teachers, Judas and Matthias, these are not the same Judas and Matthias we read in our New Testament, but Judas and Matthias, they kind of stir up their students, their protégés, to go up and tear down the eagle. And so that's what these students do. They climb up at midday and they kick down this golden eagle, except that makes Herod mad. Herod locks up the students who tear down the eagle, and he executes the two very well-loved Jewish teachers. So then Herod dies, and at Passover, there's an uprising. There's this rebellion. There's this protest. There's this fury and anger because Herod killed the ones we loved, and now Archelaus is in charge. And he needs to kind of quell these protests. And so what does he do? He comes into Jerusalem. He comes up to the temple. And he kills 3,000 Jews. 3,000 Jews dead. Archelaus was so evil, so disliked, the Romans actually ended up taking him off of leadership. They removed him from reigning over Judea, and in his place they put Pilate. You may have heard of him. So Joseph hears Archelaus is in charge. He's afraid. I don't really think I should go back. And he's confirmed in a dream by an angel. Yes, don't don't go back. Don't go. Go instead to the district of Galilee. Something I find really interesting is that over and over again in chapters 1 and chapter 2 of Matthew, we hear talk of these angels. These angels come and seem to be guiding and protecting and leading Jesus every step of the way. It's as though God is sovereignly making sure that Jesus will be safe. But then I notice something. I come nearing the end of Jesus' life when he's on his way to the cross. And you know what I don't hear? I don't hear any talk of angels. I don't hear of any talk of someone protecting Jesus, helping make sure that he's alive. Why? I think it's because Jesus isn't supposed to be murdered. 
he's supposed to lay down his own life. Jesus will lay down his life on his terms, on his accord. It will not be taken away from him. Listen to these words in John. John 19, 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read this, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Can anything good come from Nazareth? How about the one who dies on the cross for you? How about the one who becomes your substitute? How about the one who gives you his righteousness and takes your guilt? That great exchange takes place on the cross because of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus overcomes evil. Jesus leads his people to salvation. Jesus lays down his life on the cross, but he does one more thing. Something really interesting about uh, verses 19 to 23 is that in this short span, we hear three times that Herod is dead. Listen to them. Verse 19, but when Herod died, verse 20, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Egypt for those who sought the child's life are dead. Verse 22, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, who was dead. You see, Herod was known as Herod the Great. That's how he's known by historians. He had built fortresses galore. He had built palaces, theaters, aqueducts. Herod was the one who built the most impressive building in the whole world at the time, the temple. He was Herod the Great. But Herod died. He's dead. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that he died this way, from ulcerated entrails and putrefied maggoty organs. He had foul breath. He had constant convulsions, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to his recovery. You see, despite all that he did, despite all of his fame, despite all of his grandeur and success in the eyes of the world, Herod is dead. You can actually go and see his tomb, even still today. But listen to this. Mark 16, verse 6. It's Sunday. Verse 5, And these women have come to see Jesus in the grave. And verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not there. See the place where they laid him. Who is alive? Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? How about resurrection? How about new life? How about death not being the final word? How about eternity in heaven with our Savior? All of that comes from Jesus of Nazareth. You see, when Nathaniel asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
You know what Philip could have said? He could have said, can anything good not come from Nazareth? But he actually doesn't say that. He says this. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. Come and see for yourself. See, it's one thing to hear about these great things that little Jesus, little shoot Jesus of Nazareth has done. But it's another thing to experience them yourself. Jesus is the nobody from nowhere who does everything. So I want to end like this. I want to answer that question again. Why did Jesus have to grow up in Nazareth? Like, why couldn't he be famous and influential and this big deal and grow up in a big city like Jerusalem or even a well-beloved city like Bethlehem? Why did he have to be small? I mean, why couldn't he have been great and done those great things? Yes, Matthew says, in one sense, it's to fulfill prophecy that he would be despised and lowly and rejected. But I think that there's one other reason. The reason Jesus goes low, the reason Jesus goes all the way down to Nazareth in Galilee is because he's come to save the lowly. When Jesus comes, he doesn't come to save those who have their life all in order, all neat, all perfect, all clean, all tidy. That's not who he's come to save. He's come to save sinners. He's come to save those who feel as though their life is a mess. He comes to save those who are addicted to destruction, who need help. He comes, though, to save those who are humble and meek. When Jesus comes, he doesn't call you to climb Mount Everest. He actually comes down to you at base camp on the bottom of the mountain. You don't go up to Everest. He comes down to you. Jesus lives in Nazareth because he's going to die for people who are like Nazarenes, who are lowly, despised, and rejected. You don't save yourself. You don't find enough power in and of yourself. You don't garner enough success for yourself. Instead, you turn to Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in that story, he describes a young boy named Eustace Scrub. Eustace craved power. Eustace craved success. He wanted to be the best. He wanted everyone to look up to him. He wanted to make sure no one stood in his way. One day, Eustace stumbles across treasure in a cave. And he begins to fall asleep and he begins dreaming of what his life could be like with all this wealth, with all this power. And we're told when Eustace wakes up, he's turned into a dragon. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragon thoughts in his heart, he becomes a dragon. So Eustace becomes what he wanted to be. He becomes powerful and incredible and famous and indestructible. But he also becomes something else. Fearful. Lonely. Hideous. 
and he soon longs to be a boy again. And he's craving it. He just wants to go back to his meek old self. And so one day a lion appears, Aslan, and the lion says, okay, why don't you take off your skin? Take off your dragon scales. And so Eustace tries, he claws, he begins trying to take off his scales, but he can't, not by himself. And so the lion says this, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, and I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there was I, as smooth and as soft and smaller than I had ever been. I'd turn into a boy again. We're in a new year. We're in a new decade. And there are resolutions that we are making. We want to clean up our lives. We want to be new people. We want to get rid of old habits and old addictions. We want new jobs. Some of us want to buy a home. Some of us want to be healthy. Some of us want better marriages or relationships. We're all resolving to do something. And in the midst of all those resolutions, Jesus is crying out from this passage, make sure your identity is in me. Don't let what you do define who you are. Let me be your representative. Let me be the one who takes off your dragon skin and makes you pure and holy. Jesus does not call you to be better. He calls you to repent, to acknowledge that you cannot do this on your own, to acknowledge that you aren't good enough, and he calls you to trust, to put your faith in him who did it all on your behalf. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, this is a timely word for us. Lord, as we begin the year 2020, Lord, we pray that we would fix our eyes on you, who is not just on top of Everest, but who is seated at the right hand of God, who has done everything we ever could need. We thank you, Lord, that sin is defeated. We thank you that you have crushed Satan's head. Lord, we thank you that you are saving us and giving us freedom. Lord, we thank you that you are making all things right and that one day we will be with you in eternity. Father, I pray if there are those this morning who have not put their faith in you, if they have not acknowledged their weakness, I pray this morning would you reveal to them that they aren't in control that their lives will never be put together and perfect and neat. And that's okay, Lord, because you have done that for them already. Lord, help us to trust you and you alone day after day until Jesus returns. We pray in his name, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen.